for going to. I think I probably implied that we would be done with it this week, which is not the case. I keep promising you that we're going to get out of Genesis 1, and I keep breaking my promise, so bear with me. But it's just so rich, and I hate to skate over any of the riches that are here. So, again, hear the word of God, Genesis 1, beginning at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. To every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And again, this is God's word given to his people because he loves his people. Let's pray together. Father, help us now. Again, we ask, having given us your word, grant to us your spirit by this convergence of word and spirit, the eyes of our hearts might be opened that we might behold wonderful things in your law. And having seen those wonderful things, would you grant us grace to believe them? And having believed them, would you grant us grace to go from this place to do what we must do because of what is true, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. had one of those uh, conversations this last week that, that um, in some respects, I guess, only pastors are privileged enough to find themselves in. And, and pastors find themselves in these kinds of conversations as a function of who they are and what they do. I was in a, a, um, a local business this last week and um, was waiting to speak to uh, one of the folks at this business and Um, someone who worked in the office, one of the staff, offered to bring me a cup of coffee while I waited, and I was glad to have a cup of coffee. Office coffee is usually bad coffee. This was bad coffee, but I took it anyway as a kind of a good and gracious thing to do. And and as uh, this person was bringing my coffee, she asked me what I did. Trouble, right? I said, well... Um, I'm a pastor. I've just moved here, been here about a month, and said something about our church. And that was an invitation to this person to um, give me a philosophy of life. And I was glad for it. I mean, it was really kind of cool. The door was opened ajar, and she stuck her foot in, kicked it open, and walked right through. And proceeded to tell me that... Um, As she thought about the world, there were these distinctions that she made. She made a distinction between 
spirituality, which anyone can have, and religion, which is people who have a like-minded spirituality gathering together to give expression to it, and the church, which is sort of the business arm of the whole thing, the institutional arm. You got to have buildings, you got to have all of this stuff going on, and so you got to have organization, you got to have a business. So there's spirituality, and then there's religion, and then there's the church. And I was, I was interested to hear what she had to say, and after the little 10-minute lecture, she said, well, I got to go back to work, which meant I didn't have any chance to respond, which is fine. But whenever I find myself in a situation like that, there are always a couple of questions that come to mind for me. And I think they're really important questions. They're critical questions. They're questions that, when given the chance, and I'm, and I'm not uh, so timid as uh, not to ask the questions, uh, questions I do like to ask people. The first of them is this. How do you know this? How do you know this? How do you know that that's how the world works? How do you know? I mean, I really want to know what people think beneath what they say they believe. And that's one of the questions that I think is a question we should be prepared to ask people and just and really just let them respond to listening to folks listening for what it is that people think about the world how do you know that this is true and then the second question which i think is a critical question too is where does this go where does it lead where does it take you this is what you believe this is the rationale for believing what you say you believe where does it lead you Where does your conviction about the world take you? What are the implications? What are the outworkings? How does this find expression in the business of living life, doing life? How do you know it's true, and where does it go? Where does it lead? Now, I didn't didn't have the chance to to ask this person those two questions, but I'm going to go back to this store, so I'm sort of hoping that maybe I'll get the chance to do that, because I really want to know. And ultimately... I really want to know how she thinks about these things and how other people think about these things because in my heart of hearts, in the depth of my soul, I believe there is a place for people to go so that they can know that what they think, what they believe, what they're basing their lives upon really is true and is not just a matter of personal preference or inclination. That's the kind of stuff that we're dealing with as we, as we look at the book of Genesis. We're dealing with the book of beginnings, not just chronological beginnings, but we're dealing with the book of foundations. We're, we're laying foundation stones as we look at this first chapter of Genesis. The stuff upon which life gets erected. The basis upon which we come to conclusions about other things. And that's why we're doing this. And here are some of the things, and, and again, I'm seeing some faces of folks here whom I've not seen before, and I, I just want you to know, and I want you to tell your friends this, 
These are the things that I love talking about because they're matters of ultimate significance. So if you want to talk about this more after the service is over, I can't be at both doors, but I'll be at one of them. And you just tell me you want to talk, and I'll talk to you. Because this stuff matters. And here's what we're seeing in Genesis 1. First thing that we're seeing, that we have seen, is that God really does exist. When you come to verse 26, you have this little phrase, Then God said, Then God said, well, who is the God who is speaking? Who is the God who is saying these things? That's that's what we've been looking at. And we've seen that the God who is saying these things is the source of everything that exists. He is adequate to explain. He is sufficient to explain everything that we see as well as things that we don't see, but that we know are true. You can see the chairs and you can see the, the trees and you can, you can breathe the air and you can see the fans that are moving. But there are other things that you don't, don't see, but they are true and you know they're true. The longings for significance, the longing for justice, the longing to love and to be loved. Where does that stuff come from? And what we're saying is that Elohim, God, who is really there, is the sufficient explanation for everything that we see around us. And here's the other thing that we've begun to see. He's more than just a source. He's not a first cause. He's not just an unmoved mover. He's an artist. He's a creator. He's an architect. He's a fabricator. He's a former. He's a shaper. And the physical world around us testifies of the exquisite beauty that exists in him. This mirrors in some small and and, and fractured way the beauty that God is. He's not just an impersonal force, but he is an artist. He's a former. He's a shaper. He's a maker from things of overpowering majesty to things of Intricate delicacy, flower petals, and masses of stars, galaxies that are a hundred thousand light years across, whether the fine or the majestic. He's made it all. And the third thing, among many other things that we've suggested, the third thing that we've seen in this is that all of this testifies not only of his power but also of his goodness. He's a good God. Powerful and good wed together so that God's people, as they contemplate him, may know, as this question from the Heidelberg Catechism so wonderfully expresses it, may know that God is not only able to do things for his people, but because he is good, he is disposed to do good things for his people. He is both powerful and he is good. So that's the one who is speaking. Then God said, and there's a whole lot that could be said just about the fact that he is speaking. That'll come up again and again and again. That testifies, as we'll see, of his personhood. 
So who is God? Well, He is those things, and He's so much more. And you come to verse 26, and He says this, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, that, that's a statement that probably arrests you. It's arrested the church across the centuries. Let us. Who's the us being referred to in the text? Um, for a long time, uh, it, it has been through the centuries, the opinion of commentators and theologians that this is a sort of a veiled reference, a kind of a cryptic allusion to the plurality of persons in the Godhead. We, we subscribe to this idea that the one God exists in a plurality of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this plural pronoun, many have suggested, is a veiled reference to that plurality of persons. It's a subtle allusion to the Trinity. It could be. It could be. But I, I do think it's better to understand it a bit differently. It's better to understand, uh, given the other references that there are in the Scriptures using the same kind of language, it's really better to understand this as God speaking in the midst of and speaking to the heavenly assembly. The myriad upon myriad of angels who surround the throne and who, I know it's hard for you to imagine how this could be any fun, but who do nothing night and day but cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Now, the reason it's fun for them to do that is because that's what they were made to do. The reason they enjoy doing that is because that's what they were made to do. God, in the midst of this assembly, seated upon his throne, surrounded by an innumerable company of angels who sing his praise all day and all night without ceasing. God, when he says, let us make man in our image, is speaking among the hosts of heaven and is in fact speaking to the host of heaven. Again, there are three other passages that use the same language or similar language. And it's based on that that you would, I think, rightly conclude that that's what's going on in chapter 3 and verse 22, after the man and the woman have, have eaten the fruit and, and have fallen, the judgment of God, the word of God about that is that the man and the woman have become like us, knowing good and evil, having grasped good and evil. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks as we come to that particular passage, exactly what is meant there. But this same plural pronoun is used. They have become like us. Like whom? Well, they have become like God. They have become like the angelic beings in grasping and understanding something that they hadn't previously grasped and understood. And then in verse 7 of chapter 11, when people are building this tower, the Tower of Babel, and, and they're seeking to erect something that will take them up into the heavens. I don't know if you've ever driven through metropolitan areas and wondered about why people build these skyscrapers. I've often thought it seems like a modern-day attempt to try to reach up 
to do and to be something that we're really not designed to do and be. But in any event, at Babel, when these people of one language seek to erect this this tower, this temple, which is a monument to themselves, God says in verse 7, let us go down and see what they're doing. Who is going down? Well, God, in the midst of the great assembly, they're all going down. Now, we'll see this when we get to chapter 11. Be real clear about something. It's not like God has to get close in order to be able to see something. The language, the phrase in the text is actual, actually a, a kind of a tongue-in-cheek, scoffing laugh at how puny the efforts of man are to raise themselves up to the heavens. God is actually mocking the attempts of creatures to raise themselves up to the heavens. Let us go down. Who God in the company of all of the heavenly host, let us go down and see what they're doing. And then the fourth reference is Isaiah 6.8. When Isaiah receives his commission from the Lord, God says to him after Isaiah has been restored after Isaiah has been forgiven, after his sin has been purged. God, in the midst of the heavenly assembly, uses this language again. Now, who will go for us? Who will go for us? And in that passage, God is clearly speaking in the midst of the angelic host and to the angelic host, asking the question, who will go to Israel and proclaim, preach, speak the truth to Israel. So you have these passages in which this language is used in the Bible, not many of them, these other three passages, which seem to suggest in uh, chapter 1, verse 26, that God is speaking similarly. Let us make man in our image. God speaking in the midst of the heavenly assembly. Now, what do these two words mean? The word image and the word likeness. What does it mean when God says, let us make man in our image? What does it mean to be in the image of God? Well, again, here's how the language was used at the time. Uh, Here's what uh, the words meant, if you will, in their setting, in their context. An image throughout the Bible is used to refer to a physical representation of something else. That's what the word typically is used for, almost universally. It's a statue, a physical, material, inanimate representation of a living being, typically a god, though at other times a king. So, for example, Nebuchadnezzar would erect an image in the plain and would summon all of the people, all of his governing officials and all of the musicians and all of the people of the whole realm to bow before the image and to worship the image. Same word, a physical object used to represent something else, in this case, Nebuchadnezzar. So as such, this is important, the image served as a reminder. This physical object served as a reminder of the one who had erected it. Again, a god, 
or a king. The king puts up the image to remind all of the citizens, anybody who would see the image, that he is the one who has absolute power, absolute authority, to dispose in his kingdom as he sees fit. Now think back just, uh, just a few years ago to that image that all of us saw, presumably, uh, in the late spring four years ago of those statues of Saddam Hussein or the big statue of Saddam Hussein being pulled down in the square in the city of Baghdad. Why was that statue there? Think back a number of years before that to images that we saw of statues of Lenin being torn down, being removed from Eastern European countries. What's the significance of that? Well, the significance of that as the statue, the image of Saddam Hussein came down, as the statues of Lenin came down, the significance of that is to say you are no longer under the rule and reign and authority of this particular king. It's a symbolic thing when the statue comes down It communicates to the people that they're no longer under the oppressive rule of a vindictive and capricious king. So the image is not only a depiction or a representation, but it conveys also ideas of rule and authority and power. And as long as the image is there, it is a reminder to anybody who sees it of the one in whose image the image is. The ruler, the king, the authority, the power. And then there's another thing about this word, this word image. It's a, it's a physical representation. It's a reminder of the one who has the authority and the power. It's a third thing about this. It was also believed that the image actually had the spirit of the one represented within it. That was, that was also understood. So, so that if you're in proximity to this image, it's not just that you're seeing something and it's not just that you're being reminded of something. You're actually in the realm, within the purview of the influence of this image. And it's really striking in Genesis 2.7, very, very striking that in Genesis 2.7, God breathes the breath of life into the images that he has created, imbues them with his spirit, imparts to them his spirit. So among other things, the idea of an image is that it is a physical representation of another thing. That it serves as a reminder of the authority or of the power of that God or that king. And if you come into proximity, into the purview of the influence of that image, that image, in representing the one imaged, in effect, has an authority with respect to you. 
Now, all of this gets sort of captured and summarized, if you think about it, in the commissioning of the man and the woman. In the following verses, the image bearers are commissioned to do what? They're commissioned to be fruitful. They're commissioned to multiply. They're commissioned to fill the earth. And they are commissioned to have dominion over the earth. And even in this 26th verse, the word you rule is used. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion. Let them have rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air. So what are the image, make, what are the image bearers of the one who has made them? Well, they are distinct from him, but they are physical, material representations, reminders to everything around of the authority of that king or ruler, imbued with his spirit, empowered with his life, so that they might exercise a rule and a reign and a dominion with respect to everything else in the creation. But then there's this other word, likeness. And the word likeness is there to reinforce the idea of differentness. Image conveys strong notions of representation. The word likeness is designed to modify that, to qualify that, and to make sure that we're not confused about this idea. We are not God's We are different from God, made in his image, but after his likeness. After his likeness. The created thing never exhausts the reality of the one who has created it. The created thing bears similarities to the thing that has created it, the one who has created it, but is distinct and different from it. Great story. When my oldest daughter was born, I was in the delivery room. That sort of thing had begun to happen just a few years before Katie was born. I got to be there. I mean, I got to watch my wife suffer and go through all of that stuff, and I tried to be her coach and do all the things that we're supposed to do, and I did everything I could not to pass out like fathers are not supposed to do. But immediately after my daughter was born and she was toweled off and cleaned up, the doctor handed my daughter to me. And I looked at this child. I mean, this, I mean, I don't think it's the most sublime moment a woman has ever experienced because it's so excruciatingly awful. But for a father to take his own flesh in his hands and gaze in the face of his daughter, it's the most sublime moment of my life after coming to faith in Christ. And I looked at this screaming, tortured face, and I tell you, life was frozen in that moment. And I was stunned at what I saw, because what I saw in the face of my daughter was the face of my sister. I saw the family likeness. Different from my sister. Not the same as my sister. But like my sister. The family resemblance pressed into her face. 
That's what's being talked about here. We are made in the image of God, but we are made after his likeness. We are not the same. And this distinction always has to be made between the creator and the creature. You know that it's popular in our day and time, I think, more and more for people to aspire to be God, not be like God, but to be God, to divinize themselves. But in the scriptures, the distinction is always made between the creator who makes and the creatures who are made. But here's the thing about human beings, male and female. They are different from everything else. They are distinct from everything else. As you read through this first chapter of Genesis and you read about the creation of birds and fish in the sea and plants that grow on the earth, there's this phrase that they are made according to their kinds. But when it comes to the creation of the man and the woman, they are different. They are distinctive. And they are made after the image of God and after his likeness. And in that, they are set apart from everything else. So you ask the question, who are people? What are people for? You know, I, I sometimes think if we, could, if we could get hold of this, if we could grasp the significance of what every single human being is, it really would radically alter the way we relate to each other, the way we interact with each other, the way we interact with other image bearers who don't share our race, who don't share our color, who don't share our creed, who don't share our political positions. It would alter the way we interact with all people. Because even on this other side of the fall, where the image is so effaced, where things are so broken and so damaged, image bearers are still image bearers, distinct and different and intrinsically valuable because God has made them to be that way. That's why after the flood, God makes it very clear. After the fall and after the flood, that human life is to be treated as distinctive and different. It is to be respected, protected, defended, cared for. How come? Because human beings are image bearers of the God of heaven and earth, designed by God to represent his being, his existence, and even his character, what he is like. And image bearers are to be reminders of all of the rest of the creation. I am to remind you, you are to remind me that he is the king. He possesses all power and authority and all goodness and all justice and all righteousness and all mercy and kindness. And image bearers have been given life, imbued with life, are sustained by the breath that God breathes out so that they might execute in his place his rule and his reign so that they might, in their varieties of callings, 
give expression to the reality of the existence and character of God in everything that they do. And Christ has come. Christ has lived. Christ has died. Christ has vanquished sin and the grave for this one purpose, if I might put it this way. So that His Father might be glorified in the renewal of a people who will be conformed after His image, bearing His likeness, who is the express image of the living God, so that that people under the Lordship of Christ might give expression before the world, before principalities and powers in heavenly places, before all of the creation, so that that redeemed people might give expression before the watching world of the reality that God is, showing forth His existence and His character, what He is like. That's why Christ has come. I said to you last week or the week before, forgiveness isn't big enough for me. I'm glad for forgiveness. Believe me, I like being forgiven. But Christ has come into the world to rescue me, to change me, to reform me. Again, that's the best meaning of the word reformed, I think. To reform, reconstitute, reshape me so that I might be restored to my condition as an image bearer who gives full expression to the reality that God is and what he is like before the watching world and before the whole of the rest of the creation. Now, that's a big idea to me. Um, and and I, I just I want to find another philosophy, another theology, another view of human beings that is as elevated and lofty as that. There isn't one. There isn't one. And we together, you, each of you, us together, this is God's purpose for us, that because of Christ, by what Christ has done, we might be restored so as to express the greatness of his person, what he is like, his glory before the watching world. And that's what Christ is doing in us and among us. And he won't quit working until he's done. And for that, we can give thanks. So what are people for? People do exist to bring glory to God as his image bearers across the waterfront of life's activities, showing forth his existence and his character that he might be praised. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you again that um, that there is... There is truth here for us. Lord, please help us. Help us to embrace it, to believe it. And I pray that you'd give us grace to go from this place, to live uh, as though these things had gripped our souls uh, as truth that works its way out of every fiber of our being, the pores of our lives, out into the world around us. Help us to do that, we pray, for the sake of Jesus, that he might be praised. In his name do we pray. Amen. Let me encourage you to take your hymnals and rejoice as we sing hymn number 604.